All right, well, good morning. We're going to start off our fourth in the series of uh, social justice. Today we're going to specifically look at the issue of, I, I should have called it the poor as opposed to poverty, but obviously they're related. And we'll do at least two weeks, maybe three. Uh, the other big category issue I want to hit is issues of race, and that'll take a few weeks. And then they all kind of start blending, and you'll see why they should actually today. Um, as a little bit of a review and some clarity based on comments I've had, so that's SJ, social justice, where you see that? Um, been looking at these, this spectrum uh, with it, among evangelicals, Bible-believing Christians, um, God-fearing good people who want to do right, but they have a difference of view on this, and, it, and it's been a spectrum I've kind of put on these left and right sides. At the same time, I've been trying to kind of bound where would be too far. Like, you could be a social justice advocate and not, not be in bounds of scripture. Um, and you could be a skeptic and be over here. And of course, I called that works without faith and faith without works. Uh, so some of it has been along the terminology. Uh, this left side of the board tends to like the term social justice. Um, but this side would sometimes prefer just to use the word justice or biblical justice if you're going to put a qualifier because the term social justice isn't really there unless you translate things the way Keller does, right? Um, but, and that's fine. I, I can be, it seems to me completely reasonable that there would be circumstances, situations, people you're dealing with where the term would only add confusion and not clarity. And we want to be culturally conversant. And yet, I've been arguing that if just because someone uses the term, don't assume they mean all these other things. Or maybe they mean things here that you still disagree with, but it's not a, a breaking of fellowship, uh, per se. Um, I, I read a, a blog this week of a guy who's on the left side of the board, he's more of a pro-social justice guy, responding to a lot of these guys, and a lot of the the rhetoric being used, a lot of the, the fear, as he sees it, uh, being spewed. And I just think his response is, is good for us, of the type of response we want to have. He says, another major reason for the warnings about the dangers of social justice stem from the concern that the worldviews of many secular advocates of social justice will infect the church. They see concerns about racism, sexism, and poverty in the church as a virus that will also infect the church with postmodernism, Marxism, liberal doctrine, and will eventually undermine a biblical vision of sexuality, gender, and humanity. Ultimately, social justice becomes a Trojan horse that to them sneaks in false ideologies. And this is a guy who's over here. And I just think it's a great example because he's willing to think through his opponents. He's given the benefit of the doubt. Bible-fearing people, why would they be concerned about social justice? Something this guy is very passionate about. And he's, he's trying to put the best light possible in their view. And of course, people on this side should do the same things. right? They should think, why is someone so concerned about this issue, which I don't think should be handled that way, or is a lower priority in the church? He's also trying to call this side to not overreact. Let's not be too quick to just throw everything out. Um, so it's interesting, social justice news of the week. Um, so the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest Protestant de uh, denomination in the country, they had their annual convention this week. And a lot of this, a lot of these differences have been infighting in the Southern Baptists. The MLK 50 conference I talked about, the statement of social justice, a lot of the people, you have Southern Baptists, prominent Southern Baptists on both sides of this. And it's been, it's been very public. And so it was very interesting to see what would happen when they come to their formal convention. And probably similar to the General Assembly, they, you know, sometimes they come up with statements and, and decisions, they take votes on certain provisions. 
Uh, way more important than this issue, they, they took a stand against um, the covering up of sexual abuse in the churches that will hopefully have some good effects in the future. But they did make a stand, and we'll talk about the language in the future, but they, they did draw this line. We've been trying to figure out where to draw some of these lines, and they did draw a line here and throw some things to the left of the line that are not acceptable. Critical race theory, intersectionality, some real extreme group identity stuff. And so this side of the conference was pretty happy that they drew the line somewhere. They wanted the line to be drawn even further, but we'll get into those specific terms and concepts later. But there is a challenge, there is a discussion to be had about where we draw these lines, where we cut off fellowship or partnerships or whatever. Uh, another term that we've been talking about is justice versus mercy. These guys would like to use the term not just mercy, they would use mercy of course, but they'd also say, you know, helping the poor, for instance, is not just a merciful action, it's a just action, it's something that is owed to the poor. And there are a lot of people um, that I'm reading and some of you have talked to me that you're really uncomfortable with that term in some of those situations, and that's fine. You know, the, study it out, try to be as biblical as you can in these terms, but in the end, what, what am I concerned with is if, if you get to the point and you think that it's an optional, right? If you think giving to the poor as a principle, as a general principle, is an optional act, that's when you've gone too far. Call it mercy if you want, but it's an obligated mercy, right? That's, that's the most important thing. Proverbs 29.7, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. And so the discussion is kind of, is, is there specific justice for the poor that I need to give? Or are we just saying we want to level the playing field, right? Every, justice is blind. I just need to make sure that the poor don't receive an unjust treatment because they're, they're bound to. And I'm just trying to level the playing field. Or am I, am I giving more special attention to the poor in a way I don't give to the rich and the powerful? And that's where the disagreements start to come. James 2, judgment is, out, is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And then these other ones, I kind of reverse this on you because I think today we'll be more in this realm. Do we, we want to focus on social responsibility or personal responsibility? And a lot of times in our politics, that's where the division comes. Everyone would probably agree with an element of each of those, and yet it's oftentimes where you put the emphasis. For instance, we would say capital punishment is a just uh, result for certain crimes, right? That's a just thing. And in a legal system, in general, you're going to think that, you know, you do a certain crime, and if, if capital punishment is appropriate, then you'll receive it. If you're rich, you're poor, it doesn't matter. And yet, if we look at our statistics and find that the poor are, are on death row more than the rich, now we have a societal problem, and what do we do with that? And that's tough. And then more probably next week, maybe we'll get into it a little bit today, we've been discussing whose responsibility is this? Is all, are all these biblical commands to you as an individual Christian? Everybody would agree with that, whatever those commands mean, and how much of those commands should be taken up corporately as a local body. And that's where we want to really talk about what is the local church's role in these things. Uh, Tim, would you open us with prayer, please? Gracious Father, we thank you for the opportunity to again meet together and consider ways in which you want to speak to us about how we relate to uh, our broken, fallen world. So we pray that you would grant Keith much of the guidance of your spirit and that we would be uh, ready to hear uh, and evaluate our own hearts in terms of our responsibility to these very important things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
I don't have a watch, so, so when we get to 10 till, someone tell me so I know how fast to go. Um, I, I'm going to, I'm going to go really fast so you can play it back on the internet and uh, slow it down if you want. Uh, and I just want to be honest. I, I just want to kind of overwhelm you a little bit with, with the scriptures. I don't think it's even possible if I read straight for 45 minutes. Would challenge you. I mean, a great devotional this week would be, you know, type in poor or poverty in your, in your Bible app or on the internet. Um, and just the hundreds of verses that will pop out and read them all. Just read them straight and get overwhelmed with this subject. Uh, I did that this week and uh, the last couple weeks really. And I just, I tried to grab a couple of main principles I was finding. I'm sure I, I haven't hit them all. I didn't get these from anybody, so I haven't thought a lot about it. But I want to go through some of those general principles of wealth that are in the Bible before we really get into our discussion of what we do with the poor. First one is that God is, obviously, we, and we believe this as a church, God is sufficient in himself. He doesn't need our money. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Uh, but what God does with his wealth is he pours that into us. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. Think of the uh, the woman who who anointed Jesus with the, the jar of, of oil, a year's worth of income that could have been given to the poor, Judas, of all people, said. Um, she was not rebuked, right? Jesus was okay with that. Um, he, he's got it. Um, God is sovereign in our, in our own individual wealth. And so the abundance of lack or wealth in your uh, wealth or poverty in your life doesn't necessarily indicate anything about your spiritual wealth or poverty or God's favor. For Samuel 2, the Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. God isn't necessarily pleased with the poor. Some of the verses would indicate that, that blessed are the poor and, and the rich are kind of assumed to be oppressed. But consider Proverbs. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. The house of the righteous contain great treasure, but the income of the wicked brings them trouble. There are general principles. If you're, if you're a sluggard, if you're lazy, um, you're going to receive the basic do of, you know, your, your poor choices. Sometimes your poverty is just your poor choices, right? And, that, and that's the reality. Or you're a thief and, and you steal from others because you don't want to work yourself. Well, you don't necessarily going to receive a blessing from God for that. You might just receive natural curses. Uh, psalm 73, beautiful psalm I, I memorized recently. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discern their end. Such human nature to compare ourselves, to see how good other people have it. Um, and of course, we all think we're poor, right? And Which is ridiculous. If you think at any historical or global measure, everyone in here is so filthy rich. But we just see people having more. And it's just so natural. You see it all through the Psalms. What is God doing? Why is he displeased with me? And to get an eternal perspective, he went into the sanctuary of God and his whole his whole uh, perspective changed. That's why we need to be in the Word. 
We need to be in a fellowship so we can encourage each other and get our eyes off of ourselves and our circumstances, get the, the false worldly philosophy out of our minds. Uh, the Bible warns the rich far more than the poor. The Bible does speak to the poor and to the rich as categories of people, and yet there's far more given to the rich. Uh, God wants us to find our spiritual identity apart from whatever our material situation is, right? Philippians 4, not that I am speaking of being in need. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. God has purposes for what he does. He, he makes one to suffer and one, one to be a king, Right? And we don't know all his purposes. We don't understand all this. Sometimes he's doing things in nations broadly. Sometimes he's doing something in your individual heart. Even as a believer, it doesn't mean you're going to get healthy, wealthy, and wise, right? You're, you might suffer. And Paul has recognized, he's learned that secret of contentment to recognize that God is doing something in that and to look for that. Uh, James 1, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. So when it comes to the church, when it comes to Christians, we see the slave and master, right? We see the rich and the poor come together on equal ground at the foot of the cross. And the poor ought to exalt in that, not to say, stick it to the rich man. See, I'm finally at the table with you. I'm sharing the meal. No, he's exalting in the gospel and the grace of God. And the rich man, exalt, he, he's, he boasts in this humiliation. I mean, how countercultural is that? That's what the gospel does. It turns everything upside down. It, it lowers him. And he boasts because his, his satisfaction, his contentment isn't in these riches that he has. He knows at the foot of the cross, it's in Jesus. And so they both can, can boast fully and equally. And so James speaks to both of them. And yet he goes on to the rich. He talks much more about the rich. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. You're just wasting your time. You're going to fade away. You're missing it. You're missing the true riches of life. Mark 10, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God as eaters are for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible. But with God, not with God, all things are possible with God. It's impossible for a rich man to enter heaven. It's not something you should per se desire. Wealth, wealth typically means power. Certainly in the culture then, right? I mean, that's where all the power lies. typically true today. And if you're among sinners who only care about themselves, that's going to typically mean oppression, right? James 2, are not the rich the ones who oppress you? The ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Who, who's going to desire wealth like that? You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And so it's just, it's typical, right? It doesn't mean that if you have wealth, you're necessarily going to be an oppressor. But it's just typical in this world that that's what happens. 
People with evil hearts, when they have the ability and the means, they're going to use it to gain for themselves and oppress others. That's the way of life. And, and I mentioned this quote a couple weeks ago. The Bible very often is kind of assumes a, a world and even a government structure that we don't have. And that's part of our discussion I want to get to today is how do we apply this? So it's almost, the poor always, always seem to be oppressed and always, always be, seem to be the righteous and the ones who are blessed. And, and Jesus is preaching the gospel to the poor. That's a great thing to, to tell everyone. And it's the rich who oppress you and drag you into court. And now we're in a world that isn't so poor, right? We're not, we're not in a world that's so destitute. And in, in our, in a democracy, things are just aren't the same. And they're under an emperor and under a king. There's just an assumption of what kind of world they live in and how to operate in that world. And when you get to the idea of social justice, when we're, ha- when we are allowed to vote, when we, when we're rich and we have the ability to influence societies, we just don't have a lot of specifics in the scriptures to how we're supposed to do that. How is a Christian majority ought, supposed to operate? You can look at Israel as the majority, right, in Israel, and then there's complications with applying that. That, and that's why we get into disagreements. That's, that's why it's not as clear as other things. And if you're, the, well, if you're a theonomist, if you want to apply Mosaic law today, then it's clearer for you, right? So as long as you're right in that principle, it does become clear. I, I'm not a theonomist, and I'm, I'm a somewhat jealous of their theology, because it, it, it clears it up for me. It really does. But it all depends if it's true or not. Right? We're not discussing yet. What are you doing? There's a distinction between <laughs> orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Okay. Here's what your lesson is about. It's your orthodoxy should lead to your orthopraxy. Yeah, what you believe should believe to what you practice. They're anonymous, man. They are wall builders, not bridge builders. They are. They want to kill everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. I just wanted to say too that I read once that um, part of this talking about rich people was it was considered you were blessed by God if you were rich and therefore you were righteous. So they're saying, well, good heavens, if these righteous rich people can be saved, then who can be saved? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, there's verses to support everybody, right? And that's why you got to study and you got to put things in context. And you, yeah. Absolutely. And and I think it's our own natural mindset, if we're honest. We feel we deserve something. And we, we really think if God is blessing us, it must be easy, right? Uh, number four, spiritual benefits ought to lead to material generosity. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? John is saying that you have the world's goods, right? you're wealthy, and you have a brother in need. The very fact that you wouldn't help them material shows something deeply wrong in your heart. If the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. You cannot completely bifurcate spiritual and material blessings. You can't do it. The scriptures won't let you do it. How, it's, it's your orthopraxy. How, what you do with your wealth says a lot about your heart. Now again, I'm not going to get into a lot of specifics of exactly how much and to who specifically. But you cannot avoid such a principle. And, and I said New Testament, maybe I shouldn't have just said New Testament, but a couple examples that you're giving, and this kind of gets into this area, your giving is both an obligation, it's required by God, and it's supposed to be voluntary. It's, it's just the wonderful way the gospel turns everything upside down. 
At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it. And indeed, they owe it to them. Isn't that odd? This was a, a, a giving from, from a couple Gentile churches that they want Paul to take back to Jerusalem because they, they know this Jerusalem church is suffering. They're being persecuted, right, for their faith. These are Jews and Gentiles who would have never had anything to do with each other up till now. They probably have stories of being persecuted. Culturally, they're just odd. But the gospel turns out all upside down, <laughs> rearranges all the categories, all the relationships in life. And now by their own delight, by their own initiation, they want to give Paul money to take back to the poor in Jerusalem. They're pleased to do it. They initiate it. And Paul says they owe it to them. He talks more about this. Uh, he's writing to Corinth, 2 Corinthians 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They're abounding in joy. It's generous. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, their own initiation, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Imagine being in a group who is begging you that they can give to the poor. They're begging you to be of service to the saints. That's the kind of community I want to be in. Paul says this isn't a command. He says they initiated it. He calls it a generous gift, right? Grace, love, generosity, mercy, nothing. And yet, verse 13, For I do not mean that others should be eased and burdened, and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, there's justice for you, a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your, your need, and that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. We talked the first week about justice tends to talk about what's right and what's fair. And the concepts of fairness are all over the place. And, you know, I tried to argue that that would be very situational. There would be times that we think an equal share is what's fair. And other times we're giving people what they actually need. It's not always equal. And, and that can be difficult. And that's why we have these differences. That's where a lot of the differences lie. And yet, a, an act that was generous, that was initiated, um, it wasn't a command. He says that they should do it out of fairness. So again, I'm not, you can argue for a specific thing in this class, and that's great. You know, I'm not going to argue a specific situation, a specific place where, where you apply this, but it is absolutely a biblical principle that you who have much are required. Much more is going to be required of you. You're going to face a judgment based on what you did with your abundance. That could be money, that could be time, that could be energy, that could be your spiritual gifts. But there are needs that God, God doesn't need you, right? And yet he has chosen to use us in his, just his grand ways. He wants to use us as Christians and as a church to meet specific needs. And that's, that's the decision we have to make. What are those going to be? Yeah. Um, the passages you gave from Paul <clears throat> to me reflect that the social justice agenda uh, for, the, for, the, for the Christians back then was set by the church. Since the 70s in America, <laughs> um, traditional Protestant churches 
have morphed into an evangelical set of individuals that happen to go to church. And as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, you know, I'm 65, so I've seen both ends. Um, as I look at these two columns up here, I think on the right, you see where the church is setting the social agenda and Christians work through the church. Whereas on the left, I see people that are individualistic. And as a matter of own conscience, they determine what the social agenda is. And so I'm just, I'm just trying to think where, as you're talking, where the church and people in the church subordinate themselves to the leaders of the church to achieve that agenda. I think, so it's interesting because I'm, I have the terms reversed, but I think you're thinking up here is, you know what, and where you can go too far, you can be a great advocate for something you call social justice, but with no biblical measure of what justice is. Right, you just come up with your own ideas. I can do it as an individual, but I can also subordinate myself to the, to the priorities of the church, which I think is probably more biblical and being my own social justice warrior. Yeah, that's no, great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, well, okay. and that's great. That's what I want us to do because I don't have these answers. Okay. This is not a comfortable topic for me. All right. Um, number six. Uh, again, I, I can't do justice. No pun intended. <clears throat> this is just, these are just a smattering of the verses that are there. The dozens and dozens and dozens. I mean, you, you have to do some real Righteousness suppression to not let the number of verses affect you. I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. The generous will themselves be blessed, for they share the food with the poor. Do not exploit the poor because they are poor, and do not crush the needy in court, for the Lord will take up their cause and will exact Life for life. He who gives to the poor will lack nothing, but he who closes his eyes to them receives many curses. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people. Lord, you have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. When you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. I find this interesting, number seven. The poor is a synonym or euphemism for needy and oppressed people. If you kind of put in your search bar there, poor and needy or poor and oppressed or poor and afflicted, I mean, you, you get all these, these types of verses. Just a couple examples. My whole being will exclaim, who is like you, O Lord? You rescue the poor from those too strong for them the poor and needy from those who rob them. Defend the cause of the weak and fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And so uh, there are these specific categories that we hear a lot, the, the widow, the sojourner, the poor. But I, I would argue that it's, it's really just a category of people who are, who are needy, who are oppressed, who are afflicted, who are, who are vulnerable to to whatever situation, social structures, they're vulnerable because they don't have the resources or maybe they don't have um, the intellect or whatever. And I don't, so I don't think we have to talk about the poor. This should very easily uh, extrapolate to anything that might be in your life. You were supposed to tell me 10 minutes ago. Thank you. 
Thank you. Uh, this is a tough one. I, I won't bear this out today, but and this is one of the hardest things for me. Somehow there's a connection between material and spiritual poverty that I don't quite understand. Uh, Luke 6, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. I don't want to say he's not talking about material poverty and wealth, and yet I, because I think that I, the words don't make sense to me, and yet he's clearly going beyond that. He's, Jesus is clearly going beyond pure material issues. Luke 7, he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Why is Jesus not exalting that the gospel is preached to everybody? Specifically, it's preached to the poor. I have my thoughts on that, right? The people who, the poor are going to be far more likely to to understand their poverty, right? To fill a need. It's the rich who don't need Jesus, right? And so um, it's it's the Pharisees who have their religious self-righteousness who don't need a savior. And so I think that's definitely part of it. But that's something we'll tease out. You can tease it out today. We'll do it. In the so here's my first real discussion question. Do the sheer volume of these verses imply a preference for the poor? We want to talk about equal justice, equal measures. And this is just so much about the poor. There's so kind of an assumption against the rich. What do we do with this? What, what is it? Does it make sense that God would have a preference for anybody, even if they're the poor? Well, we know he's no respecter of the Exactly. So why does he respect the poor so much in all these verses? <laughs> One of the main idols in our society as well. And so we're talking about the poor, and we're talking about the poor. Yeah, but they're poor, they're proud. <clears throat> Poor people can be just as proud as rich people. Right. And so I think he's talking more about poor in spirit as in Matthew's gospel, where he's talking about people who are bankrupt spiritually. But not just that, because I do think he he does have compassion to the poor. But uh, otherwise, to me, it doesn't make sense for poor people. And that's where people on this side would would tend to argue, some some to the point of there is no concern for material poverty. It's all about spiritual. Would we go that far? No. Why not? How do you spiritualize one and not the other? <laughs> yeah. God saves us body and soul. Yeah. He cares for our bodies. Yeah. It's not an either or often. It's a both and. Exactly. And the poor are more needier, so in that respect, God would be more inclined to focus a little more, maybe, on what their needs are. Yeah, that's one of the questions. Does he focus on the poor? Are the poor just more receptive to the same gospel? Or are both true? And in my mind, it's if, if it seems to be there's a priority for the poor, a focus on the poor, um, and yet, in Mark 10, he says it's impossible for the rich. Seems like that's where you'd focus, right? It's easy for the poor, relatively, than the rich. So, it's challenging, right? Where do you put your emphasis? Do you put your emphasis on feeding the poor or preaching the gospel to the rich? Or, and again, and, and they seem to almost war against yeah. each other when you, when you only have so much time and resources. Yeah. So they're more open to help, probably. I think so. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we have to be brought low to, to receive grace and mercy, don't we? There's two things that stick out to me, and one is to remember that like God is going to choose who he's going to choose. So like people's receptiveness, he doesn't need people to be receptive in order to get their hearts. And I think that his heart for the poor helps illustrate that it's nothing that we bring to the um, transaction um, that we're helping God out. He doesn't need our wealth. Um, he can take those who have nothing and use them, and that's who he loves. And so I think those are two things I think are helpful to remember in that dialogue. So you look at how often Jesus spoke through parables, and you see that he uses our circumstances to teach us spiritual, heavenly things. I think that the emphasis on the poor is to draw us to our need from it. Like when we, personally, regardless of your financial state, when you go through trials, you depend on God more. And it should be that you depend on God always. But I think similarly, he wants to use the church, he wants to use the church to care for us, to continue that perpetual cycle of our, to just see our dependency and our one of the broad questions I've been asking, and we, I definitely want to get into more later, is should the church be working outside the walls of the church to get society more just? Or should it focus more on becoming a just society that models what true just society would be? In Galatians 6.10, right? We, we do good to everyone, but especially to the household of faith. And so the, there is definitely a priority, however you understand it, there's definitely a priority for the Christians. A lot of the verses actually are assuming a church, right? Um, giving to those in need. And so... Yeah. Right. Um, I feel like this whole topic is really tied to um, the dip, us trying to differentiate what's sacred and secular, what's secular, which isn't biblical. But in history, there's been that divide... And being the kind of that gener same generation, we watched it all happen. And um, like, if I can feel how to say it, sometimes we, like the, what you just said, divided us out. This is the church, this isn't the church. But in creation, it's all God's. Yeah, and so there will be those who, you know, don't want to rearrange the chairs on the Titanic kind of a thing. Let's stick with the gospel. Let's stick with evangelism and discipleship. Let's stick with the church. Let's not worry about the world. And then there, and then there are others that this is all of God's world, right? God cares about justice in Babylon as much as he does in Jerusalem. He should be honoring people because they're being God's image. Right. Whether they're in or out. Right. Even though he sets the priority biblically of making sure inside we're well cared for. Give a half hand up. <laughs> sort of. uh, example of that, I had an Uber driver in Texas this week, lovely African American man who had a stroke. Okay, he said he was in his front yard doing a little bit of uh, gardening. A parent that he needed a fence, a pastor from the local church, stopped by and said, "Looks like you need help." He said. I'll hire him. He goes, hang on a minute. He made a phone call within a week. His church came. What a He doesn't go to church there. He never went to church there. 
and he still does it, but he was so impacted by that. I don't know where he is, sir. So, however you would, whatever category you put that in. I love that. Don't worry about the category. Let's get to the, the action. And that, a question I asked last week, I'm going to bring back because no one answered it. How, how would our acts, social justice, acts of mercy, whatever you want to call it, how those types of works interact with evangelism? Should they at all? We do them regardless of response. We do them with a chance to share the gospel. Or we at least do it with a chance to show the glory of God so that they know. Yeah. Oh, I was just thinking about a guy I work with who, He's one of these people that God puts in your life to humble you. You remember being down in an HR griping about something, and he looks at me and he goes, Man, that is such a first world problem. And you know, a lot of our problems are so first world. They are. We do need to know. We do need to see you know, how, how blessed to have been that we might be willing to bless others. Or I'm trying to, on the fly, decide how much I'm going to get through, which is fine because we have more weeks. Um, I'll start with Leviticus 19, uh, and this is just an example of many passages. It says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Exodus 23 talks about, leaving your field hollow every seven years, right? Just leaving it so that the poor can come in. And, and assuming there's a principle that we're still able to apply from this, um, what are some general principles there, at, at least general principles, that we might glean from this? That was a joke. Uh, guy that comes to ministry once in a while that uh, yeah, likes that verse, so he goes and cleans in people's yards. <laughs> <laughs> He's biblical. So he's biblical. Right there. What what are some general what's some general equity of the law we might gather from that passage? Leftovers. Got leftovers? That always makes me. That, that's always been an interesting verse for me because we always think of well now I need to gather it up and give it to them, but God's saying leave it and then they come and get it. Yeah. So what's what's a good we principle there? Think of like oh well we need a government program to come in and fix this, but we all know that programs really do not yeah so again there was a there's an obligation by the law god's going to know if they're doing this or not but at the same time it's going to be an individual's voluntarily obeying that law um in israel i don't know how much it was policed and it made sure people did these things but general principle the poor are coming they have to work that land right so there's some great principles there you're not you could argue about creating dependency or not but at least it's not a simple handout, um, not that I'm always against handouts, but there, there should be something that these guys would like in that, that there's some personal responsibility. you got to go and work it right, right? You've got to go earn it. Um, I, I find a principle there that we don't know who the poor are. We don't know why they're poor. This is left for everybody, right? You could be rich and come by and glean some of those land, right? <laughs> there's, there's, no, there's a risk there to your giving and your generosity. We don't know if they're deserving. We don't know if they're grateful. We don't know if they're Jew or Gentile. In fact, it specifically says, let the sojourner do it. Uh, we don't know if they're impoverished because they're a sluggard or if they've hit hard times. It's a widow. Um, and so it's, it's kind of a generosity that is given some risk if you're really worried about full accountability. Um, Keller makes the point that sometimes when we're generous to those in need, 
those who don't deserve it are going to benefit. You think of a, of a single mom who's a drunk, but you want to help the kids. You're necessarily helping that mom. And you got the risk. What if you have to give the money to the mom to buy the kids things, right? What if she doesn't spend it on what she's supposed to? I imagine the deacons run into this, right? Do you want to give more? How much are you going to keep giving? Those kids are still in need. Those are tough questions. There's clearly some level of risk. Um, also, and I definitely do want to get to this because this is just, uh, maybe not. I, I want to get to the, um, to the Good Samaritan. Um, but it's, it's too big of a discussion. Um, let me ask this, and, and I'll, I'll bring this back again next week. How do we understand the poor? What does the poor mean? Um, clearly, we're talking about people, in, scripturally, you're talking about people who don't have clothes. They don't have food. They don't have shelter. They're in real dire need. I, there's very few in our society who could be described as that. Certainly not compared to back then. There are, there are those. Homeless, right. The naked is really probably a euphemism for homeless. And so, here's my question though. Do we define the poor as anyone at some basic threshold level of, you know, risking survivability? Or is it simply you have the rich and the poor? And so it's just a comparison. So, say in America, our average poor are going to be much richer than anyone in the past. And yet, so do we have an obligation to care for those who are poorer than us? So it's a comparison thing. Or is it to care for all those below this threshold down here? For instance, if we're, if, if it's the threshold issue, um, most of us shouldn't be giving to anybody in this city, right? There, there are some. We should all pretty much be giving money to somewhere around the world. If you use the threshold. If you use the threshold. Or, from a social structure standpoint, that because poverty and wealth are tied to power, and the ability to oppress, you're still going to have the relative rich in our country get get off scot-free in court more than the relative poor. And so, open question, what, what, how do we define the poor in such a rich modern society? Really, anybody that can't provide for themselves are lacking in Basic needs. So the basic needs, you look, look at the basic needs. There's so much stuff that goes involved in there, you know, like, um, you know, and I've talked to people for 13 years out there, it's, uh, you know, why are you outside? I've never met anybody born homeless. So, I mean, why are you outside? What led to outside? There's so much layers of stuff to get through. Um, but yeah, the, but the initial thing is the basic need right then and there. But then what are we going to do? Right. Remember the categories we talked about: relief, development, and then social action. Some, some kind of social change, social reform. It's also the yeah. Yeah. You know, I met some people out there whose families are very wealthy and are homeless. Not, not, not that they don't have anything, but you know, they're very wealthy. Yeah. Very wealthy. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's this. So many layers of stuff. What? Think about the fence thing. So what if what if that church took the stance? Well, this guy's needy, but he's not as needy as Ethiopians or Ugandans. So instead of spending our time on that guy, all our money's there. 
Well, he just missed the chance to show that guy the glory of God, right? Potentially. So it depends on what it was about. Well, they could have worked and earned that money somewhere else and sent it to Ethiopia. <laughs> when you minister hands-on, it's very different from just writing a check. Yeah, exactly. That's a great point. And yet the Macedonians and Corinthians are doing it. They're sending money across to Jerusalem, people they'll never meet. Great point. Yeah, that's I wanted to get to, the Good Samaritan. So read the Good Samaritan this week. <laughs> Luke 10, we will talk about that next week. It's, ex- it's exactly where I'm getting. I was going to hold off on these questions till then. But. Even, uh, I think it's uh, John and Peter and Acts. Uh, they went to the, the beggar and they said to him, you know, gold and silver we do not have but Jesus Christ. So, there's another example of are they meeting the physical needs of that beggar? Do they also know that if he would repent, trust in Christ, his physical needs will also be met along with his spiritual needs. Right, right. But they didn't just hand them out. The cash needed. Just another physical example. It is. We'll probably turn to that. The the definition of who is poor, who is needy, really is a function of the corporate church because you heard five or six different individual answers in here. Yep. And if the church comes together and says, you know, we're going to, we're going to, limited resources, we're going to go to Ethiopia and serve the guy across the street. But I think that is biblical, and uh, and then the, the members of the church have to decide. Well, I really disagree with that, and decide: Are they going to vote with their feet? Are they going to are they going to submit? Or maybe they'll just go individually and help the guy across the street, which is fine. But yeah, I, I, yeah, I I think um, I mean there's if when you really open your eyes to any justice issues, it's so overwhelming. You cannot, you cannot, cannot, cannot. Hit every category, much less every person. And so you're, at some point you're deciding, we're going to do this and this, but not these, right? At some point. And so it seems very easy to me to see how, just how individuals might individually be involved in one cause versus another, that a church as well might do that. And the church might, you might have an evangelical church like Keller's church who's over here and MacArthur's church is over here and, and each church is going to have a little bit different identity in there. And at some point you decide, um, not hopefully too easily just to leave with your feet, but, but, but over time you do decide, well, th- this is such an issue on my heart. I'm not condemning Christians who disagree with me on this, but this is such a burden that I want to be part of this that that might be, you know, what you type, tend to want to join versus leave, hopefully, more, more often than not. All right. Uh, this week I would encourage you to either read all the verses on poverty, which would be awesome, or at least the Good Samaritan. And we want to talk about that. Who is my neighbor? What are some principles there that might uh, help direct us? And then I think we'll probably also have time to maybe get into, I'm not sure I'm going to go this way, but the whole idea of the year of Jubilee. Uh, one of the arguments by social justice folks is, you know, they redistributed the land every 50 years. Is that something we should look at? Um, at some point we'll get into that. Um, what are some other things you can think about? Uh, Isaiah 58. We'll also go to Isaiah 58. Um, and we're going to start looking at how much of this is an individual thing. Isaiah 58 talks about your worship. You who do not show justice in your lives, don't you dare bring me your fasting and your worship. So how much of this is a church issue versus an individual issue? All right. Bob, can you pray for us? Father in heaven, we thank you for this day that you've made and this opportunity we've had 
to come and, um, and, and look at uh, what your word uh, tells us and how we should uh, be, uh, how we should go about spreading the, the good, uh, good news, the gospel. And, and, uh, and, uh, we just uh, thank you that, um, that you have blessed us so much and give us the wisdom that we need to properly discern how to share that our abundance that we have. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.